Welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is Robbie Martin. Today we have something different for you. A crossover spectacular with podcast Unauthorized Disclosure, hosted by Kevin Gastola and Rania Kalik. So this podcast is essentially going to be a mashup between Media Roots Radio and Unauthorized Disclosure with all four of us having a conversation. So we hope you enjoyed this podcast. And if you do, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash media roots radio. So without further ado, here's Kevin, Rania, Abby, and I. And uh, welcome to Media Roots Radio with Abby Martin uh, joining Unauthorized Disclosure for a little crossover episode with Robbie Martin. Hey. Woohoo! <laughs> Did it, you guys! We've been trying to organize this for a bit, so I'm glad it finally came together. Yeah, definitely. I have everybody here uh, to talk, and you know we're all so busy. We're, uh, we had definite difficulty lining up all of our schedules, um, and but we wanted to talk before we got into any specific topics about some of the stuff that we're all doing because we know that people who listen to the show really support it. And also, I haven't had a chance to hear about some of these things, and I, I, I wanted to start by just seeing how everything was going, Abby, with Empire Files. I know the last time we talked about Empire Files on Unotherized Disclosure, we actually talked to Mike Preisner about um, the funding issues that were going on and, and how uh, Telesur no longer had uh, the funds to keep it going. So I'm curious, now that you've had several months to do it independently, how Empire Files is doing. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, it has been kind of a full frontal assault from the Trump administration. It's been really hard. Like you said, Ronnie, it feels like we have whiplash. It's like it's hard to keep up with what is going on because it's been so, uh, so much. Right. And it's such rapid fire, um, whether it be foreign policy or domestic policy and just these executive orders. So I feel like it's been so long since we've all caught up and talked because we're just trying to cover this. Um, but yeah, I mean, a lot of people don't realize that Trump installed, you know, debilitating sanctions on Venezuela. Of course, we've seen that CEPA report that you guys just covered on unauthorized disclosure um, about the 40,000 dead in, since 2017 alone. And I think that that's just a really, really shocking report that everyone should be very aware of. But um, years before that, right when Trump got into office, he kind of picked up on that model of Obama declaring Venezuela a unique national security threat. Um, even though he had only slapped on a couple sanctions, Trump ramped them up to like 60 or 70 uh, immediately um, with his gaggle of neocon criminals. So um, that had devastating uh, effects, consequences on the funding structure of Telesor, of course, the state-run news agency, a, a conglomerate of Latin American countries, um, including Venezuela predominantly. So it, it had disastrous consequences for freelance journalists, especially because we're talking about the inability of getting funds outside of Caracas. And uh, we were struggling for months and months. And I, you, you guys know my history well, leaving RT, um, it was a difficult thing kind of treading the waters of alternative media, knowing that there isn't many other places to go. Um, Telesor is one of the only other places that you can really go to challenge U.S. imperialism, to challenge corporations. Um, and so it was really devastating to have lost that funding structure. And I really did not want to go the donation route and and really fund this journalism with donations because I left RT wanting to do more long form investigative stuff. And that shit costs money and um, and and the production value costs money. And it's not easy to do this. So it's kind of it's it's kind of counterintuitive to go like the opposite direction of where media is going. Um, so it's been difficult to to kind of figure out how we're going to survive this project. You know, it, it's slow going. Um, but then again, we we eventually launched the fundraiser and it was a, an enormous success. We raised 60 grand within just two weeks, um, which covered the entire cost of this documentary that we launched the fundraiser for. Um, we hired a team of uh, 12 journalists in Gaza working with the Council on International Relations, and they've been risking their lives every Friday to go out to that, uh, you know, quote-unquote border fence where gunshots are just flying by them. And, they're, and again, they risk their lives to get us this incredible footage. It's the most insane footage I've ever seen, especially from the Great March of Return. So we have kind of this exclusive story um, with Razan's surviving family members, her colleagues, um, paramedics who were shot, journalists who were shot, 
um, the organizer of the Great March of Return himself, as well as just um, incredible steady cam footage going through showing everything that happened. I mean, it, it, a lot of it's actually really hard to watch because a lot of people get shot on camera. Um, but but sorry for rambling. But I mean, all of this is kind of bringing me to the point that um, the fundraiser was very successful and. You know, it, it, it essentially at the end of the day, it's going to cost about 60 grand to put this documentary together. Um, and yeah, so it's, it's been really great to get the feedback and to get the donations from people. But we have to keep going, you know, and we're going to keep going. And after this documentary is done, we're, we're ready to take on the next thing. So it's incredible to have the support on Patreon. And I think that's just where people who understand the abysmal state of media understand that you need to start supporting and funding directly the journalists and entities that you want to support because we have no, um, we don't, we're not backed by right-wing billionaires and we're not signal boosted by the fucking war criminal in chief. Right? So even though Paul Joseph Watson and all of these people are getting, you know, censored from social media corporations, they are going to be fine at the end of the day. And we can get into that. But I mean, the right wing is protected and shielded and backed by billions of dollars. And, and we're not. So, um, so yeah, that's, that's what's happening right now. The documentary is coming out in a couple weeks and we're having a big premiere in LA and then it'll be available online. And, and then other than that, Kevin, just doing, churning out these media roots radios with Robbie and uh, just covering the day-to-day, -day, uh, uh, the insanity that's going on. So that's what's happening, man. Robbie, let's hear from you. Uh, are you uh, done with a very heavy agenda, or is there more stuff that you're doing with that? I know you've been doing lots of work on neoconservatives and their influence in the past few years. I mean, I have, so, so the very heavy agenda, the way it is now, is uh, three parts. And the last part I made... Um, during the last year of the Obama administration. So as far as I'm concerned, I mean, the Russia stuff, which my movie was primarily about, has gotten so intense um, that I have to make a part four just to show what's happened since then. Um, and I feel like I kind of know my narrative now. I mean, there's so many different directions I could go with it, but Bill Crystal is definitely going to be a main character in it um, because I feel that he's rebranded better in this era than almost anybody else has um, managed to revitalize mm -hmm. his, in, his entire image practically. He's friends with fat Joe now. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, he's woke. And yeah, so I'm, so I'm definitely going to still put that out. I don't want to give a date for it right now. Cause I already did before and it was, I, I didn't make the deadline for that date. So I'm just going to keep it open-ended. <laughs> um, I'll start promoting it when it's closer to completion. Um, but on the podcast itself, um, I've been taking sort of the same philosophy that I did with a very heavy agenda on specific episodes um, that Abby and I have done recently. Um, one of them was uh, called um, Schrodinger's Super Patriot, which is which is like our first attempt at doing a true crime style podcast. And of course, I did it about the anthrax attacks. It's kind of one of my main obsessions. Um, and then we just recently put out a podcast uh, that I thought was a fitting time to put it out, especially right now, because of all this talk about Russian spying um, and meddling in this country. Uh, we put out a podcast about a bizarre phenomenon in the late 90s, early 2000s, where over 200 Israeli spies were rounded up in the United States and sent home with almost no incident. Um, so we recently did a podcast all about that and the bizarre connections to the MDMA trade. Um, that have to do with that as well. So it's pretty much what I've been working on recently. That's exciting. And, and Rania, let's start with you. What what the hell have you been up to? You churning out videos almost every other day or doing these investigative reports? You're at the Venezuelan embassy. Like what? <laughs> so I obviously I'm still living in Beirut, Lebanon, which is where I'd like to be right now. Um, but at the moment, I'm currently talking to you guys from DC. I'm just like visiting family. Uh, and obviously, and so I've had some opportunities to go to the Venezuelan embassy where crazy shit is going down, but yeah, I'm at, I'm at in the now, um, which is cool. I get to like, uh, I'm in a different situation. It's kind of the first time where I haven't been freelancing. Um, like, uh, and I actually have like a, you know, regular job with one place, obviously in the now is like a subsidiary of RT. So I'm under the RT umbrella, but at the same time, it's like, uh, kind of cool. Cause it's more of its own thing. Um, 
and I just get to do videos. I get to do documentary style videos. I get to do like just silly videos. I get to do just the sort of videos that you see mostly, which is just presenting to camera. Um, it's just kind of my personality. So it's, it's really cool the position I'm in right now, but I'm very well aware of the fact that like, um, when it comes to media, like I really don't know where else I could work. <laughs> mm -hmm. really 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 don't um i don't know like sometimes i think you know a few months ago we were sent like in the now got censored from facebook temporarily because of this attack by these like the cold warriors uh who were like their russian propaganda um and i was like at uh, once we got censored from facebook i was like really worried and we can talk about this a little bit more but i was worried in the sense of like what is what if in the now doesn't exist anymore because of this what do i do um, mm -hmm. and it really is like, like scary in the media industry right now, because if you're not like a corporate hack, you have very few options other than asking people to donate money to you. And it feels really unstable. Like it really, like it really does like freelancing feels really unstable. Like depending on, um, like hoping people will donate to you feels really unstable. And it's like, I don't know. I'm constantly anxious about that. Like all the time. I don't know if you guys feel the same way, but it's like a constant anxiety of mine is like, what do I do? If like this, if this particular project, because I, I, as more shit gets censored, I feel like we're always next. Um, yeah. I don't know where I'd go from there. Sorry to be all doom and gloom, but on the, on the bright side, like I get to make these really cool videos that I'm really proud of. I'm having a lot of fun. Um, and I just feel like I'm a thorn in the side of people who hate us. So like <laughs> that makes me happy. <laughs> well, Rodney, so, why don't you plug the latest one you did on teachers? Oh yeah, so I just released a sort of mini documentary. It's like it's about seven minutes long. On um, I uh, I spoke with a couple teachers in DC who have like second and third jobs because they're just teachers are just paid so little, and the statistic is something like one out of five teachers, though I think it's higher, has a second or third job in order to get by. Oh my god! Um, across America, I mean that's a really crazy statistic, like. And the really crazy thing, too, is like in, in the doc that I just released, uh, one of the teachers I spoke to, he actually changed careers. He spent like 15 years in the Navy being a fighter jet, like a fighter pilot, uh, fighter jet pilot. And um, then he decided to switch careers and go into public education. He, he teaches special needs kids because he was just really passionate about it. And he had like a 50 percent pay cut. Like he took a 50 percent pay cut to do that. And I was asking him, like. When you were in the military, like you're, because he was talking about all these budget cuts and how like budgets are always being cut and it impacts teachers and then they have to buy stuff and they have more kids in their classes and they have less resources. And so I asked him if it's like that in the military and he was comparing the two and he's like, absolutely not in the military. If you need something, they give it to you. And it just shows you like the disgusting priorities in our society where like our government just like spends all this money on empire. There's like a limitless like amount of resources, whatever it takes. And then when it comes to educating kids, it's like cut, 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 cut. Um, but yeah, that's that's the, my latest one that just came out. It's funny though, because I tend to focus so much on foreign policy that like I always wonder. I don't know if you guys have the same issue because you guys don't always just do foreign policy related stuff. But like I always wonder. Sometimes I feel like the audiences are totally separate for like foreign right. policy and domestic issues. And I'm like, these things are so interrelated. Like we spend so much money on war. Well, it's fascinating, the disconnect. I mean, it, it, how can we get free healthcare? How can we get free college unless we actually completely sever the military industrial complex? It just seems so batshit crazy that people can't wrap their minds around that cohesive like thought. <laughs> I mean, here we are, like how many, how many years after MLK, 100 years after FDR, and we're still like struggling with these basic concepts, you know? Well, what you often hear too from like, there's a lot of politicians who are starting to say things about like, we spend all this money on war, why mm -hmm. on healthcare? And like, that's a great talking point, but I wish they'd just go the extra right. and be like, instead of spending money on war, we could be spending it on healthcare. Not that we can just have both. Like, yeah. you know what I mean? It's always like, like there's this so called like Ro Khanna will be like, we spend all this money on war. Why can't we spend it on healthcare? And I'm like, that's great. But like, go a step further. Yeah, and even Rokana says good wars or bad, like we shouldn't waste money on like bad wars. It's like, well, what the fuck is a good war, dude? <laughs> it's still that Obama paradigm for yeah. Afghanistan and everything. And then you've got like Bernie Sanders doing this thing where he's like the axis of authoritarianism. Um, oh my God. Like, which I find really problematic because I'm kind of like that sort of, I don't think he means it to be, but it's kind of a neocon framing. Like Bernie Sanders will say like, and he's right about a lot of things, but then he'll be like, there's an axis of authoritarianism. 
And it still puts us in this good versus evil shit. Instead of like, no, 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 no. Like, it's not like good versus evil. It's, it's, I don't think that exists. That's a, a very neocon way of thinking. And so it's even hard to get our progressive politicians out of that mindset. So, Kevin, what you have been, I mean, it, when I think about your reporting, I can't think of anyone better and just more, like, you have been so comprehensively covering Chelsea Manning and WikiLeaks and just Julian Assange's cases more than anyone else, um, perhaps Alexa O'Brien as well. But, like, I, I just can't applaud you enough for doing this from the beginning and consistently going out there and just, like, putting out such an incredible comprehensive report on on everything that's going on with both of those cases but anyway um other you know you can talk about that also but like what have you been up to you're running an entire news website as well as just like doing tons of stuff <laughs> yeah i mean with shadowproof the whole idea has been to be able to take a step and actually employ and hire freelance journalists and try to do a small part to make up for the lack of work that's out there um, and we've had some success, although I'd like to think that um, there's much more that we can do at Shadowproof. But really, I mean, this is, I was blindsided. I don't know how you all felt, but waking up the morning of April 11th to see Julian Assange being dragged out of the Ecuadorian embassy in the UK, I just, even though WikiLeaks had warned that this was coming, and, you know, this is something that I had been covering for well, basically my entire journalistic career um, that is, is like the thing that has defined my work i just had no expectation of this and then went into overdrive trying to cover it and already knew that this was possible i suppose because chelsea manning's still in jail refusing to answer any questions for the grand jury that's investigating but it's just been rather incredible. And I mean, it shows you in covering this in the last month here, it shows you just how abysmal uh, the culture of the U.S. press is because they won't even just read the fucking indictment. Like, <laughs> like, just read it because they keep saying it's about hacking. It's actually an attack on journalism. It's actually an attack on somebody who has published information um, and I think that like this fits into a lot of the things that we deal with in our work and a lot of the fears we have about what powerful people can do to us because Julian Assange is really a dissident publisher who's been hiding out in an embassy for fear that the United States government is going to take away his freedom. I mean, in hiding out because he's afraid that someone's going to take away his freedom he actually was imposing solitary confinement on himself for the last seven years in an Ecuador embassy that we now know in the last year was completely hostile to him and that this um, President Moreno, who's running Ecuador, is a right-wing person who has been very sympathetic to Trump and uh, these other people who have come to power in Latin America, uh, like Bolsonaro, and that he's willing to sell out someone who actually was granted dual citizenship. I mean, it's amazing. Julian Assange is a citizen of Ecuador, and they sold him out to the Trump administration and let the British police haul him out into a van, um, and now he's in solitary confinement in Belmarsh Prison in the UK. And so it's, you know, it's, it's rather incredible, but as far as you know, my work goes, I'm, I'm, I'm really into this right now. Um, the one thing I'll plug is that there's a book coming out from OR Books um, that's going to be an anthology of writings about Julian Assange, and I was asked to contribute to it along with some other writers. Um, I think Glenn Greenwald and some other people might have some pieces in there, um, and uh, it, it was important to me to to do this. And I also was asked before he was arrested to to do this, um, and it's. A really important book, I think, because this is, you know, I hate to caveat it, but I suppose I will because he's such a polarizing individual. No matter what you think about how he has like dabbled with right wing people in his in the last two or three years, it really doesn't matter at this point because he's on the front line of this attack that could really impact world world press freedom. 
What do you think is going to happen? Um, I mean, I, obviously, we know that the pending extradition is is a big threat. But I mean, what what exactly happened right now? Because I, I heard that he got sentenced to what fifty days or something. No, fifty weeks. Fifty weeks. Yeah, it was an extraordinary. It was the harshest sentence. I believe he was even given more jail time than somebody who had committed a violent offense in Britain. I forget the exact case, but um, it was uh, it wasn't just throwing the book at Julian Assange. It was it was going a step further. Um, uh, oh, here I have it right here. This tweet. There was someone called the so-called speedboat killer who was convicted of manslaughter. Who- <laughs> Only six months for failing to appear in court. Uh, Julian Assange never killed anybody, um, though I know the imperialists who stumble upon our show will disagree. But, uh, you know, there's no evidence that anything WikiLeaks ever released resulted in the deaths of people. Uh, Mm -hmm. So, anyways, he got... I think that he's got a shot to maybe win... Um, only because against extradition? You mean against extradition? Yeah, he's got a shot only because of the sort of abuse and mistreatment that he's already endured. The record, I think, that shows that the U.S. has been targeting him. Some of the press issues involved, even though the U.K. has actually a worse culture for press freedom than the United States, in my view. Because we saw like the hard drives that were destroyed when there were the Snowden files were on them. When they brought in those uh, police to like break them in front of a camera, but uh, you mean you mean at the oh well, yeah well, at the Guardian office they they the police came in and like destroyed the hard drive right in front of everyone. What do you think? But what do you think is going to happen? Like, is there so there's an extradition trial in like a month? Is that well, right? So there's a in uh, June, and he will have a chance to challenge the case that the U.S. puts on. Um, I don't know if he's actually going to go to court. He appeared by video link in this latest hearing, but I presume he'll probably go to court, but he'll, he'll be there. And I think that this actually will stretch on for like two to three years, potentially, just because there are higher courts that it can go through. The wild card here is, I don't know how Brexit impacts all of this as far as his ability to go to like the European court of human rights and challenge his extradition. So that's been an issue that I haven't really wrapped my head around completely yet. Um, but then we know that Lori Love was this hacker who was um, who went through this really long, drawn-out process and ended up winning, um, triumphing, and, and Lori didn't get extradited, and, and that was a hacking case. Um, so if we go through that model, I mean, certainly the U.S. is pursuing Julian or claims to be as if he's a publisher who engaged in hacking. So um, I don't think that it's out of, I think it's extremely possible that Julian would win. I just think that it's going to be excruciatingly painful throughout this whole arduous process. Wow. I mean, anyone who's rational would just be like, you've already spent eight years in an embassy in solitary confinement. Walk away a free man. Like you've already, you've done your time. But yeah, we know how this works. But um, that's good, I guess, that there's a chance. Yeah. To To be fair, though, and to give voice to like liberal concerns, like, He's not, he's just not that likable. <laughs> he's like kind of a weird guy. <laughs> like it's like, he's a dick. He's, he's a, a dick. Jerk. He's such a jerk. Yeah. He was <laughs> on a skateboard in the embassy and, and you're not supposed to skateboard in the embassy. That actually made me so sad watching that video of him like skating. It was just like, I damn. It was my mind. Like if I, yeah, he was like trying to Ollie and I was just like, fuck dude. On my way here to the U.S., I took a plane that was, like, 14 hours. I think that's the longest I've ever been in one plane. And I, like, almost lost my mind because I couldn't <laughs> plane for 14 hours. Like, could you imagine if you were just stuck in, like, an embassy? Like, in one place, like, a space like that for, like, eight years or however the long he was in there, eight, seven years? That I would go crazy. Yeah, it seems like there's been a lot of incidents with embassies lately, like the Khashoggi thing, like Assange being dragged out. And now you have these kind of threats of like invading this embassy in in Georgetown, D.C. It's pretty surreal. So this yeah. is there's a random story well, that but- came out in the news um, that's still kind of a mystery. Uh, I think it was like two weeks ago that someone believed to be CIA tried to attack a North Korean embassy. 
Did you guys hear about that? In Spain? So, I don't know where it was. Yeah, it was like in another country. Yeah, it wasn't in the United States. Yeah. Spain. And the something. guy has been arrested and his pictures all all over the internet. But at first, for some reason, they were saying it was like a CIA attack. I don't know where they... Yeah, they got, Whoa. Quiet. They got real quiet yeah. about it after that. But like, they were like, yeah, this was like some weird CIA... I mean, yeah, this whole embassy thing, too, is like, it's a bunch of unprecedented stuff because it really just violates all these norms. Like, they mm-hmm. shooting itself in the foot because then it just opens it up to, like, people can do that to your embassy. Right. But, right. yeah, this- I think the craziest thing was definitely the guy getting bone sawed inside the Saudi embassy in Turkey. <laughs> and then Trump's sitting with, like, a round table of Lockheed Martin and Boeing officials, and he's just like... We're going to keep, they're just like laughing about it. He's like, we can't stop that $110 million arms deal. And he's like, yes, sir. Like the Lockheed Martin CEO is just like, yes, sir. It's just like, what the fuck is happening here? Sometimes it really does feel like, like I, you're watching some sort of inverted reality Yeah. where it's like the people in charge just show you they're evil, like mm-hmm. pretending they're not. You've got it's surreal. <laughs> I mean, and and speaking and this whole RussiaGate thing has it's really unfortunate because it has diverted a lot of attention to Trump's actual war crimes and like exacerbation of the drone wars of you know the, the complete obliteration of Raqqa. Um, it's just it's insane how little is being discussed about all of the stuff that he's doing abroad because of of course the you know bipartisan foreign policy establishment the Democrats pretty much agree with it. <laughs> Yesterday or a couple days ago, AOC, our progressive hero, uh, was like, about, about Venezuela, was like, I defer to the Democratic leadership. And you're like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, how hard is it just to be against, in, like, regime, against U.S. intervention? Like, it's such an easy thing to say. It doesn't, like, require you to even know the specifics about Venezuela. You could literally just have, like, an an overall view of like anti-interventionism dude that's why i love that you confronted snowden and then he responded to you i was dying laughing i was just like oh my god it was so good you have to tell oh so like edward snowden when (laughs) uh there there was like it was like a, a week ago when the u.s attempted its coup that like didn't work where like juan guaido was like it's a military uprising and like only 12 people showed up um so Edward Snowden, there was like reports from like Marco Rubio and people like him that the Venezuelan government had shut down Twitter and YouTube. Uh, and so Edward Snowden, instead of denouncing the coup, was like, this is like, we have to condemn this speech. <laughs> like it wasn't even confirmed that anything was shut down. It was literally like a Marco Rubio rumor. And that, that was what he said. He was like, we have to condemn this violation of free speech. The Venezuelan government must allow people access to the internet. And so I just like responded to him really politely. And I was like, dude, like, like, it's see, like, I think you're like getting wrong. Like you got to see the bigger picture here. Uh, there's a coup attempt happening right now. There's sanctions that have killed 40,000 people. Like maybe condemn that. <laughs> and, and he responded to me. He's like, I don't know a lot about Venezuela. Um, but he literally said, I'm like paraphrasing. Cause I don't have it in front of me, but he was like, I don't know a lot about Venezuela or what's going on, but I'm a free speed absolutist. And like, I was just like, you fucking idiot. Like, he just yeah, doesn't know what's going on. Yeah, and he was just like, I'm just going to speak on what I know, which is like free speech. And you're like, but you're, but that's actually not confirmed. And actually, it turned out to be bunk. A point people were making to him, too, is like, okay, like, what do you think is going to happen to free speech in Venezuela if, like, the right wing takes over, you dumbass? I mean, yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> if you have, like, a right wing fucking coup, like, military coup, you idiot. I was just really surprised to see that. I mean, Snowden, I know I don't. I know he's not like perfect and stuff and he has some stupid views, but that was just really like, wow. You're- yeah. It's like, as you're exiled in Russia, you and like, you know what I mean? Like Trump wants to hang you and you're like, like but yeah, but free speech. And I mean, let me just echo Marco Rubio. Oh man. Robbie, did you see yeah, that? I did see it. And it just to me was a gross example of this pervasive sort of, I, I would almost describe it as like CIA socialism mindset that we all need to be internationalists standing up for the solidarity of every protest movement. It reminds me of the stuff we used to see right when the Arab Spring happened, where it was like, mm-hmm. you're a paranoid, you know, authoritarian apologist if you think the CIA has anything to do with all of these uprisings <laughs> across the world. Even, even as like they're like exactly. weapons, yeah. like, and they have everyone knows So, I mean, it. It, it's, just, it's just that same <laughs> crap, and I really do think we're in a bad way on the left when very few prominent figures are saying anything like really strong about uh, staying out of Venezuela. So it's, it's really alarming to me. I mean, 
but again, Abby, and I mean, like we we were kind of like, damn, if Trump really does launch a real war, the mainstream media is going to be behind him. Like, I mean, we knew that when when he bombed mm-hmm. Syria the first time. Seeing a Brian, mm-hmm. was it Brian Williams talking, quoting Leonard Cohen lyrics? Mm-hmm. How beautiful it looked. Mm-hmm. Yes. I mean, it just crazy shit mm-hmm. like that. So we were just like, wow, this is not going to work out well when he wants to launch a. And it seems like he's trying to go after Iran now at the same time, which is crazy. So there's a whole other discussion. <laughs> it's crazy because, like, uh, it's it's crazy because John Bolton is like in charge of foreign <laughs> policy, yeah. and and like Rachel Maddow the other day was like, he's just a human. John Bolton's just mm-hmm. a human. Imagine being imagine being poor John Bolton. You gotta go to work while you're trying to launch stuff against Venezuela <laughs> and the president's talking to Putin. Like, that's what she had a whole segment. It was like the first time she even said anything about Venezuela. And it was basically asking like John Bolton to please like undermine Russia. Yeah. And and like don't do what Trump says, just do war on Venezuela. Like yeah, that was an inordinately surreal so moment bizarre. from her, I think. Like people were just like, Oh, why are you surprised? I was like, This actually was a little bit surprising. Yeah. Can't can't lie. I mean, it was very surreal to see Rachel Maddow, liberal resistance hero, actually sympathizing with John Bolton's inability to install like violent coup. <laughs> <laughs> John Bolton, as like of like all the neocons, John Bolton's like this ultra nationalist psycho neocon who like actually wants to blow up the world. Like if he, God. I think John Bolton would blow up the world. Like he wants to go to war with like five countries at the same time. And so to see her like backing that is just so insane. And to see all these little minions like supporting her, like I. I got to say, like, sometimes, you know, I, I get a little bit of culture shock when I'm in the U.S. for, like, the couple weeks that I come to visit because liberals are so stupid. Like, they're so, they remind me of, no, they remind me of Republicans. Like, they really, really do with the way they just, like, don't get anything systemic. They're just, like, all about these weird slogans, and they really think that, like, that, like, if you just take Trump out of office, it'll fix everything. Like Yeah, they're just tribal. It's tribalism that's guiding all of this, and, and it's my party. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. Kevin, what did you think about the media coverage, or what do you think about the media coverage, because it's still going on? The Venezuela coverage, this kind of lockstep uniformity, and, you know, like that FAIR report just came out that showed 0% of elite corporate media journalists um, oppose the coup. I mean, it, it does feel a little bit schizophrenic at times because even though we understand the state of media, even though we understand the structure of corporate media, the subsidization of like weapons contractors, oil companies, and banks, it still is surreal as hell to see this going on and like manifest in this way where literally not one person is opposing this. I mean, I don't know. Well, first I'd say that I had an experience of my own. I went on Al Jazeera English to do a segment and it crystallized for me how this isn't limited to the United States as far as how the opposition's propaganda has been able to permeate all of these different networks. I mean, I was on there and I was asked after I shared my own views based on something I had written, I was asked one of the dumbest questions I experienced last week, which was, well, how come Nicolas Maduro won't come out and stand with the people outside his presidential palace? How come Nicolas Maduro hasn't been seen? How come he's not out there with people? And I was like, you know, I don't have a fucking clue. <laughs> Why are you asking me this question? Like, this has no substance behind it whatsoever. And um, I basically, like, I, I mean, on air, I said, I don't know, but I do know that 40,000 people died from sanctions between 2017 and 2018. And basically, that was my way of saying, like, this is what fucking matters, and this is what mm-hmm. we're going to talk about here. I'm not going to talk about what Maduro is or not doing. I mean, I have no idea. I have, honestly, I have no idea what the Maduro regime is doing. I haven't sat back here and tried to, you know, predict exactly what they're doing or to critique how they're handling all of this. I mean, I can't imagine what it's like for them being under siege by the the biggest empire in the world and how you're trying to survive every day as you're being squeezed. But it's like CNN has been nothing but like a big PR outfit for the opposition since the beginning. Um, and, and the most recent event with uh, the events on April 30th where Guaido just popped up and randomly declared that there was a military rebellion, which didn't exist, uh, was incredible because 
there was this guy who was one of their correspondents. Um, I think he's, uh, he's might be from Latin America or he's Spanish, but uh, I think his name's Stefano Pazaban, and he was there, and he actually said on air on one of the hours during the daytime that he had witnessed military people coming out of the ranks of the military and switching sides and they had assault rifles and then they were firing assault rifles outside of the La, La Colada military base in Caracas where this was all unfolding and you had basically CNN just on uh, just just if you turned on turned on CNN there was this weird thing where it was like you got to watch like a surveillance camera of just unfiltered unedited footage of like tear gas smoke and like people just milling around it looked really strange like there wasn't any thing the hell like a live like a live cam like cnn cam and then (laughs) while they were doing like their latest stupid updates on the Mueller report fallout or whatever while they were tweaking uh, bill Barr, they had this live footage in this little mini like vertical frame it looked like an iphone type footage on the side of the of the screen it was so hokey but obviously, it's for propaganda. It's for making people more sympathetic to the opposite, or basically confirming people's views because they're already sympathetic to the opposition. And I mean, I ask you, like, what do you all, I mean, Abby, Robbie, what, what do you think about where this all goes? Because uh, it's really apparent to me that Wang Guaido and these people are super amateurs. They're some of the worst coup plotters imaginable, which might be good for everybody but on the same hand it's like venezuelans are dying as they try to do this but they really don't seem to have a fucking clue how to make this happen yeah i mean i I, sadly i think that it's it appears to me that they're trying to provoke some kind of incident where the world will be watching and it'll be enough to justify some kind of actual u.s military invasion not just um, you know, loose support for this active coup taking place, but actual troops um, going in. That's my biggest fear. And it seemed like the Trump administration was trying to essentially set that up from the very beginning. Once they announced Juan Guaido is the interim president, they all, uh, Maduro announced sort of as a counter reaction, now all U.S. diplomats need to leave the country. And what ended up happening was uh, the Trump administration is just like, no. We refused to leave, and Maduro made a calculation to not actually do that because he's smart enough to know that if he had done that at that time, it could have provoked some kind of military response. I mean, God forbid it did, but it it could have gone there just from that. So that's what I'm worried about now is I don't put anything past this administration to do something like a like a Operation Just Cause um, kind of show invasion. So that's what I'm concerned about right now. Yeah, I'm really concerned about it, too, because as you mentioned, Kevin, um, Venezuelans are being starved and they're dying at the hands of these debilitating genocidal U.S. sanctions, um, actually preventing food and medicine from coming in. And they're being used as pawns. I mean, it's absolutely disgusting. It's a cynical plot. And as we know, the right wing, more affluent Venezuelans, the revolt of the well off, they are precisely the ones who can buy food and medicine. And so they just continue to use the poor of their own country as um, pawns, again, to try to like beg the U.S. to militarily intervene. And we know that the implementation of a new regime would be a fascist um, coup because we're talking about 20 years of ongoing social programs that you can't just upend without actually erasing um, not only the voices of, of the poor and working class Venezuelans, but killing, killing them in mass. Um, and that's what we're going to see. And, you know, going back to Trump, I don't know what the hell is going on in the minds of this kind of gaggle of war criminals that are leading this pack. Um, it, it seems on one hand, they're so amateurish, they keep fucking up. Um, but on the other hand, we know that Trump doubles down on his almost worst failures. And like when he thinks that something isn't going right, like he might double down on it um, despite the consequences. And I fear that, you know, 40,000 Venezuelan lives is a drop in the bucket compared to Elliot Abrams, um, you know, committing genocide in Latin America, John Bolton, the million lives in Iraq, the, this crazy war architect. So I, I'm scared. I think that first we saw a parliamentary coup attempt. Now we're seeing kind of a military coup attempt. Um, 
Maduro's government is holding back to such extreme lengths that um, really are unmatched in any other modern country of like what government and military officials would do if some guy was gallivanting around the world cosplaying as president and, and literally trying to subvert international law and like siphon millions of dollars, you know, from the, the legitimate president. So he should have been arrested, thrown in, in a cell long ago. But I think that they're really playing their cards and really kind of worried about anything that they do could be construed as an international incident. What they don't realize is that everything already is. Yeah. I mean, like that armored vehicle running over protesters was like the number one thing all over CIA socialist Twitter, you know, for a whole day. Yeah. And, 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 and Juan Guaido's being, and it ended up being that it was like actually, I think opposition people who had taken it over, like they had like kicked the people out of the car. It was on video. Rania, how weird is it to like wake up? This is so surreal to me. Like, yes, CNN, MSNBC, all like Daily Beast, all of that shit is just like lockstep, you know, pro coup. But then it's just so surreal to me to see like Juan Wido's media arm encompasses social media. It's like I wake up and all day there's a Twitter moment. Trending. Yeah, a Twitter moment of the GNB, the GNB vehicle like plowing into those people is just like all, like for three days straight. I was just like, what is actually going on here? These, these Silicon Valley social media companies are like, they are arms of US empire completely 100%. I mean, even with Gaza, Gaza was being bombed over the weekend and like, and Hamas was trending and like, it was a Twitter moment and it was all just IDF accounts. Like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And like IDF propaganda. I mean, it's pretty insane, but with like, with the, the stuff in Venezuela, I mean, which I, I was saying this before we started recording, but like I'm in D.C. right now where there's this embassy situation taking place. Right. Like for anyone who doesn't know, the um, the U.S. kicked out the diplomats. They gave them like you have to leave by this day, the Venezuelan diplomats in the embassy in, in D.C. And so the, the Venezuelans at the embassy just kind of handed the keys over to these anti-war protesters um, who like are against intervention in Venezuela. So it's like code pink and answer people. Um, who are basically in the Venezuelan embassy <laughs> month protecting it from basically opposition taking over. And right now there's like all these right opposition exiles who are like all these rich people, um, they're, like basically like a right wing mob outside the front of the embassy who like won't let anybody come out or go in. And they're like trying to starve the anti-war protesters out. And it's so nuts because it's been like this has been going on for weeks and it's like the U.S. can't even overthrow Code Pink from the embassy in D.C., let alone overthrow the government in Venezuela. And it's kind of it's just funny to me. It's funny because you have like this like bully dominating country that controls the world, like who's unable to to at this point, at least uh, to get their way in in this country, no matter what they do. So I kind of I find that somewhat like positive even though there's all this dis- yeah. happening yeah i mean the resilience the resilience of the venezuelan people is just monumental i mean it's something that is really unmatched other than maybe cuba um but yeah i mean it's because of their sheer resilience that the coup hasn't worked the venezuelan embassy thing is so uh, uh, bizarre rania your footage of it just the footage from inside and stuff the fact that these people are like banging like pots and pans bl- like bullhorns laser lights like flashing and they're just like occupying like a public area in a, in a busy neighborhood yeah and they blast music all day like left first of all left-wing protesters would never be able to behave this way like oh god no the police are like on their side these people like it's like and they, they've been a little bit violent with some people and the, like if they're like violent with you you just have to take it because if you like shove them back you'll get arrested so that's what the Secret Service outside the embassy and the like canine unit is doing. They're just like protecting this right wing mob of race. They're like they shout like racist slurs, homophobic slurs. Um, they gotten a little bit better the last couple days because I think like they realized they were looking really bad uh, on Twitter. But it's been like I mean, you go there and they're just like rabid these people, and they're all white too. Oh, of course, white European Venezuelans. Well, talk about who was exposed to be like in the crowd. Yeah, so, like, the, there was this one guy who I got on video just calling, he was like, you fucking bitch to me. I was like, I wasn't even doing anything. I was just, like, standing and observing and taking photos. And he just, like, assumed I was, like, I was, like, uh, like on the side of, maybe I just look like a leftist. I don't know. He just assumed I was. So he started shouting, <laughs> you fucking bitch. And I was like, you don't even know who I am. And 
And I was like, I'm a journalist. And like everybody around him was like, oh, stop, stop, stop. But he just kept calling me a fucking bitch. Um, and uh, I got him on. And so I put it up and it turned out he's like some guy who works as like the marketing strategist for the International Development Bank. And then there's like another guy who's like an executive at Raytheon who's been identified as being out there among the right wing protesters. And then there was like somebody else who works for the World Bank. So it's just like a bunch of elite Venezuelans who work for all of the organizations that want to overthrow the government. <laughs> Imagine is why they're able to be there like in the middle of a day on a Tuesday. Because Definitely Venezuelans we can trust. Yeah, exactly. And they've got these crazy signs. Like they've like taken over the entire outside of the embassy. So before it was all these anti-war signs and then they replaced them all with like uh, signs that say like uh, code pink, get your hands off Venezuela. <laughs> like, and, and like there's one crazy sign that's like, Cuba, Cuba, Russia, uh, China, and Iran, hands off Venezuela. And I'm like, Iran? Like, what? Yeah, right, Hezbollah. <laughs> well, you keep, hear- you keep hearing them talk about how there's like tens of thousands of Cuban spies. And it's like, no, those are called doctors, <laughs> dumb fucks. Like, they are Cuban doctors working in Venezuela to provide free health care. Like, I, it is surreal. Cubans is also extremely racist, too. Right. There's these Venezuelans. There are, these opposition people are fucking everywhere. Like, in Lebanon, there was this um, event that I went to at, like, Lebanese American University that was, like, about, like, not intervening in Venezuela. And Che Guevara's granddaughter, or da- daughter, who's a Cuban doctor, was, like, speaking there. Wow. And a couple other. It was a really interesting event, you know, like, people who are against intervention. And Lebanon, there's, like, a big, like, Lebanese-Venezuelan community that's uh, basically just a bunch of elite assholes um, who are all pissed off because they had businesses in Venezuela that weren't doing as well after Chavez took over. Um, and so they, like, live in Lebanon now. They're, like, either half Venezuelan, half Lebanese, or they're just Lebanese and grew up in Venezuela. And so all of these opposition people of this, this group of people I, I'm talking about came to this event and just completely disrupted it. And at one point, these girls were like, the Cubans in Venezuela are disgusting. They're like the Syrians in Lebanon. They're just... Wow. Like, these people are just elitist racists. Holy uh, shit. Yeah. But yeah, Cuban doctors in Venezuela are just like a bunch of evil spies. Wow. <laughs> Healthcare is evil. Yeah, Robbie, have you seen the whole argument being framed as like, oh, so you support Russian imperialism in Venezuela? It's like, well, there's a difference between like the government inviting a country to like come help protect it from the U.S. empire trying to like. Well, it's the same thing they did with (laughs) Syria. I mean, it's the same logic. It's like we I mean, most people should understandably have the view that uh, all these countries that don't bend to our whim, uh, Russia is likely allies with them in some way. I mean, so like it just—it's just bizarre to me that we get that people so easily get sucked back in the, into that because it's like, well, yeah, Russia would probably want to help out Venezuela if the U.S. government is pointing the barrel of a gun at them, saying, you know, get rid of your president. So, um, yeah, it's just—it's just fucking crazy the amount of Russia hysteria still. Um, this idea that po- that Trump is still a Putin puppet because. His conversation with him, he said that there weren't any tr- Russian troops in Venezuela, so he like believed Putin. It's just fucking stupid. Well, <laughs> there was a there was like a story last week or maybe a couple weeks ago about like a whale in Norway and how like the whale was possibly a Russian spy. Yeah, I saw that. And that was like a legit story. Yeah. <laughs> what is going on? Don't forget the crickets. Oh, that, that I was crickets. just going to say that. Yeah, that, that story about all those diplomats going deaf or allegedly going deaf is, I think it's, I mean, it's definitely made a lot of people paranoid. I mean, it's just such a strange story that was going on for several years. I mean, there was even, do you remember that story that came out? I think it was a British journalist or British MI6 guy or something who claimed that Russia infected him with like a permanent bladder infection. Do you remember this? What? I mean, there was so there's so no. many different. I mean, this is even crazier than the story about giving an American diplomat GHB and then shitting on their carpet. I mean, there's been there's people. <laughs> oh my God. I mean, there's just so many. You can you can count up so many of these weird stories. Okay, what you know? That's like like at, the, at that point you're getting into territory where like you're just blaming any bad thing in your life. On yeah. you. <laughs> I can't get my dick up and fuck my. Right. <laughs> Yeah. Rachel Maddow has a hangover. It's like Russia again. Good God. It's, it's crazy. <laughs> you can get rid of your gut. <laughs> uh, 
uh, closing and on that note, like, thank you guys so much for doing this crossover with us. It was awesome. It was so good to catch up um, and talk to you guys. And like Abby said, like, it's so important for people who are listening, if you are able to, to support uh, shows like ours, because like, that's all we got. (laughs) (laughs) Any closing words, Kevin and Robbie? No, it's just really a pleasure to be able to talk. And I'm glad that we were able to make this work. I, I think about what has been going on in the last four years, and it's just been exhausting. And I can only imagine how much worse 2020 and the rest of 2019 will be given what we've already gotten as a preview through the response to the Mueller report, through insufferable candidates like Joe Biden entering the race and all kinds of other things that have been happening. And it is exhausting. And you know, we didn't even talk about how we don't burn out. Uh, I'm trying <laughs> to handle all of this, but I'm not usually one to preen and talk about self-care in the way that a lot of lefties um, will do, even though I do think that it's important to pace yourself and not, um, you know, we're, we're important. I think that we do work that people respect and that people don't want us to be gone and, and, and missing. So we can't uh, work ourselves too hard to the point where we take ourselves out and can't work for like a couple months because we've become totally exhausted. Yeah. But obviously, uh, everything that's been happening has been very intense. And I'm glad that there are people um, like you, Abby and Robbie, that are out there that are working along with us to promote reason around uh, these kinds of stories and issues. Yeah, this is great to to be able to catch up with you guys and um, keep up the good work and keep fighting the uh, the power. Let's do this every couple months too. It'd be yeah. fun. <laughs> yeah, we should like do an even bigger crossover event. Keep kicking ass, you guys. Thank you so much, and uh, hopefully we can do it again soon. Thanks. Bye. If you liked what you heard on this podcast today, please consider supporting Media Roots Radio at patreon.com slash Radio for as little as $1 per episode. Thank you very much.